Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I also, I like being able to remind the people that I'm still writing things down because best case scenario, they forget that you're a reporter, but I want to remind them, like, I'm still writing this down. You know, they tell you stuff that you're like, oh my God, I can't believe you told me that. And I think it's a little more honest to be writing it down so they can see it and not just think like we're having this little intimate conversation between ourselves. You know what I mean? Welcome to Write Lane, a podcast of the Tampa Bay Times. Each week, Times reporter Lane DeGregory discusses her stories and answers your questions. The focus is on craft. My name is Maria Crillo, and I'm the Enterprise Editor at the Times. As we mentioned recently, Lane and I were in Norway at a narrative conference, and we obtained audio recordings for several of the sessions. This podcast will feature one of Lane's talks, where she discusses how she brings back all those amazing details to weave into her stories. Today's topic, reporting for story. So I've been a reporter for 30 years. Um, I've been getting paid to be a reporter for 30 years. I did it a long time before that for fun. Um, but I've only, I, the first 10 years of my career I spent as a news reporter. So I was gathering facts. I was gathering information. I was sharing news you can use, things our readers needed to know, um, or things that had just happened in the community. And then my wonderful editor, Maria Carrillo, who some of you all might have seen yesterday, she plucked me out of this bureau. I was three hours away from the main newsroom, covering three stories a day on average. And she started this narrative writing team in 1998. Um, I had just had my two children then, so I was in this whole new mode of life. And she posted a thing that said, would you rather tell stories than impart information? And I was like, yes, that's exactly what I want to do. So I got picked with three other people from our newspaper to start figuring out how to do this thing called narrative writing. Um, I am not professing to be an expert on it, but after 20 years of doing that, I've sort of come up with some different ways of reporting. I think there's um, a very different process when you're reporting to tell a story than when you're reporting to write an article. So what I wanted to do today is kind of walk you guys through some of those, I don't know if I call it a technique or a tip or something like that, um, ways you can connect to your subjects in the field, other things you can do when you're reporting that help tell a narrative rather than just a story. So to start out, I want to define a narrative a little bit. Maybe that's, I hope it doesn't seem too, you know, too below you guys, but um, a narrative is basically a journey that you're going to take a report, a readers on. So articles share information. The important stuff goes at the top. Do you guys write in, have you ever heard the term in inverted pyramid? You guys write like that, where all the important stuff's at the top, and then they chop it off when it gets boring down at the bottom. So that's why readers, some of the engagement is so low, I think, on a lot of our sites, where the news articles people are spending, you know, 10 seconds with, or two minutes is a long time of engagement. Most of our narratives in the paper that my team is writing, people are spending 15, 20 minutes on, which is incredible. But what that is, is that we're drawing the readers into the story and taking them on a journey with us. So I think, you know, a narrative story follows an arc. 
it makes people want to know, you know, what happens next. And that's, that's the magic of it. You can keep your readers wondering what's going to happen, what's the question you want them to follow through on. Um, and I think the most important part of this is articles are facts, narratives are feelings. You have to tap into some kind of emotional depth of your subject so that your readers can connect and feel themselves somehow in the story. Whether they can relate to the person or whether they think, oh my God, I've never heard anything like that before. It's the, a, a way to connect with them and make them care. So when I, when I walk you guys through today, I was going to give some examples. Um, I spoke a minute last night during the awards thing. I spent the last three years working on a narrative project. I've never worked that long on a story in my life. I mean, I was writing other stories at the same time, but I followed this little boy who was born with um, a rare uh, fatal disease where his muscles didn't work at all, and he was supposed to die by the time he turned two. But while he was still in the hospital, his mother is scrolling through her phone trying to figure out what this crazy disease really is, and she comes across a YouTube video. And it's a video of these scientists in Seattle, Washington, who have found these dogs that have the same disease as Lincoln. It's called X-linked myotubular myopathy. It's a big mouthful, XLMTM. But the dogs had the same thing as her little boy. And these scientists had found this way to re-engineer the broken gene that caused this disease. So right when I got into the story, the little boy's name is Lincoln. And um, Lincoln had gotten approved to be part of a clinical trial that they were going to try gene therapy on people for the first time in 20 years in the United States. So I wrote this kind of um, braided narrative. And one part of it is the little boy trying to keep him alive long enough to get the cure. And the other part is the scientists trying to perfect this radical new gene therapy and make sure it's safe for humans. So as we go through um, the tips and the process, I'm going to give you some examples from that, from that series. That's why I'm telling you that story. So you'll see some, some of that as we go along. So the first thing that I wanted to put out here is my little acronym I made up. <laughs> and it's easy to remember, CAST. Those are the four ingredients that I want before I write a narrative. Before I even pitch an idea for a narrative, I want to have these four things. And what does that look like? First thing you need for the story, obviously, is a character but there's magical things that you need from that character. You need, first of all, someone who's interesting and interested in being part of it. But you also need access. That's the hardest part. That's the part still after 30 years that takes me the longest to broker access. Have somebody who's willing to let you into their lives. If you don't have that, it's really hard unless you're reconstructing something like that. So I, I work really hard on coming up with that. But finding the character, sometimes, is a process of going around what I call this wheel, or like a sun, it looks like a sun. Um, and you put your topic in the middle, and then each one of those spokes, I usually try to find at least six of them. Who, who are the stakeholders in this story? Who has something that they can tell as part of this, that you can go through them to tell the window on the story, right? So in this case, I thought at the beginning that it was this little boy, Lincoln. Lincoln was four years old. He was going to be my main character. Then I went around the wheel, and I thought, okay, this kid, he can't talk, he can't move, he's four by the time I got to the story, so what kind of introspection is he going to have? Everything was happening to Lincoln and around Lincoln. So when I went back to the wheel, I thought, well, I could, I could do the doctors trying to save him. I could do these scientists out in Washington who were working on the gene therapy in this crazy lab. I could do another child like him who was a little bit older. There were two in Florida. Um, and the more I thought about it, the more I thought, it's Maggie's story. 
it, this is the story of his mom, right? And, and dad, too, but the, the mother um, was so introspective and so open, and the more I talked to her, the more I realized she was going to be the perfect insight into the story. So Maggie became the main character rather than Lincoln, which totally helped shift my reporting on that. Now, Maggie was a wonderful person, so I'm not saying this about her, but your character doesn't have to be perfect, right? Flawed characters are wonderful. Somebody who's got something wrong with them or somebody who's got something to hide, I love those type of characters as well, complicated characters like that. Um, so it doesn't have to be, you know, the most perfect person out there. And I, I look often for the, um, the extraordinary in the ordinary. I love that idea. You find the most ordinary person out there, and what is extraordinary or different about them that you can bring to life? But if you have somebody who's really extraordinary, someone like a way outlier about something, finding the ordinary is just as important, right? So that, that balance of extraordinary and ordinary is what I'm looking for when I look for a character. This is the kind of the beginning of the story. We start, I started with Maggie rather than Lincoln. She grew up under the shadow of death. When I was really young, Maggie said, I used to lie in bed at night, cupping my hands over my mouth to make sure I was still breathing. Her brother had died of the same disease and she was afraid she was going to die as well. So she was kind of, that was kind of how we set up the story at the beginning. Okay, so the next, the A part of cast, so you have your character, you know you have access. When, when I, um, oh, I should say this, when I start working on a story, I want to broker that access with my character, and I want to be real honest about what I need. Like, I'm, not, I'm never going to say to somebody, I want to move in for three years and, like, witness your life and embed in your family. I think that would scare everybody away, right? But, I, like, who would want me to do that, right? Um, but I do say I'm going to need to be there when things happen. I'm going to need to be there in your home. I, I want to get to somebody's bedroom. You know, that is like my ultimate goal, is to get into their bedroom, the most intimate space in their house, to find out how people really live. I want to look in their refrigerator to see what kind of food they stock, or if, like, my refrigerator has pretty much, like, ketchup and beer in it. Like, I'm not a cook. So you, tell, you can tell something about people from that. Scour their bookshelves. What's on their iPad? What, are, what kind of music do they listen to? So I go real wide and deep, but I explain to the person what I'm going to want, and I also say, I might ask you some really weird things or ask you to tag along on some really weird events. I don't know everything that I need, but I know I want to get everything I can, right? And I try to make sure that the people can ask me questions. So my first thing I will do is like make up a pickup line. Have a pickup line before you go broker your story. Have a reason that you want to tell the story that you can articulate to your person, but also sit down and give them a chance to drive the bus, right? What do they get out of this story? How many times have you guys had people go, oh yeah, I don't want to do this. I, I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to be interviewed. I don't want to be part of your story. Well, I understand that. I don't think I would want to be interviewed by me at all. <laughs> but I want them to have a chance to say, what are you worried about? Okay, you don't want me to do the story on you, why? What are you worried about? What do you stand to lose? What do you stand to gain? And be real honest and let the people interview you first. You know, if they have five minutes, ten minutes to tell you their feelings and thoughts, they're going to be a lot more willing to open up afterwards if you can reassure them about something or explain what it is you think other people are going to get out of hearing their story. So I, I want to make sure I have a really good uh, reason for them to share their story with me. Um, then I need something to happen, right? Action. These are the scientists making the gene therapy in this bioreactor in San Francisco. I need, I need something to happen. Me, I like to, re 
to record things as they happen. I know some people like to reconstruct them, but I want to be there to witness when the action is actually happening. Um, so can I watch it? Can I come along for the ride with you? I want to find a quest, a question, or a complication. You know, is the guy going to get the girl? Is the dog going to find his way home? Is the team going to win the game? The, the, the major question, which becomes, I call it the engine of the story, something that drives the story forward and that keeps your readers wanting to come along with you. This question was, in this story was, will he get the shot? And the main turning point after the lead of the story said, could Lincoln live long enough for science to come up with this cure? So I actually asked it in the form of a question. That's kind of cheesy, sometimes it doesn't always work. But I want the readers to know what's that main question that they're following along with me for. Setting. I think setting is so important in narratives. So that's the S, right? Character, action, setting. A sense of place where you can transport your readers to this world that's maybe familiar, but maybe so alien they can't even imagine. I have two children, and I can't imagine living the life that these people lived. This is Lincoln's bed, which is in the middle of the living room. And all around him are medicine bottles and tubes and charts and breathing machines and catheters and everything to keep him alive is the center of their world in this house. And so the setting was pretty stagnant in this story, except when he went to the hospital. Um, but we were in the house almost all the time. And we were able to move from the living room to the parents' bedroom and back and forth, but it was very contained. I think the more you can um, scoop up all the details of the setting, of course, the easier it is to transport your readers there. But some things you don't know um, are going to matter, you know? So it took me probably a couple weeks in this, in this setting before I was able really to grasp what their daily life was like. They had charts on the wall of every time he pooped. They had charts of every time the nurse came and they took his temperature and they did his feeding tube. And so those things became part of the story too. The setting was almost like a hospital room, you know, in the middle of their house. And when I was writing it, I was trying to decide, you know, do I start in real close zooming in on Lincoln and his bed or do I go through this whole living room setting. You can, choose, you can zoom in and out. I think in narratives, it's really fun to, to zoom in on a super close-up shot and then go out on a bird's eye view and take... We actually had a drone film part of this to show he lived in this um, neighborhood where all the houses looked the same in Florida. You know, it was like one of those Edward Scissorhands-type neighborhoods. So we started out with a drone where everything showing all these houses that looked the same and then zoomed in through their front door into the living room for the video that showed nothing is the same here. This is, this is such a different setting from what you might think happens in all these matching houses around the neighborhood. Okay, and the last part, the T of uh, the cast, is theme. And I think that's the part that most people don't think about very often. Um, but every good narrative has a theme. It has some kind of universal connection. Um, a, a really wonderful writer, Jan Winburn, in the United States calls it the why of the why. So why are we writing this story? Really, what is it about? But, but what's, keep asking that question, the why of the why, to find a theme. Um, my editor makes me come up with the one-word theme before I even start writing. And it helps a lot when you're putting your, all your big piles of notebooks together to know what this is about. Uh, so we went back and forth about what was, what was the theme of this story. Um, I thought the theme was hope to me. It was hoping to keep this little guy alive. And she thought the theme was luck, that he was born right at the time that science and governments were going to allow this crazy radical thing called gene therapy where you'd actually alter the human gene. 
So we kind of went back and forth about that before I started writing. Um, but it helps so much to know what is, what is the universal connection there that anybody can relate to, right? So character, action, setting, and theme. If I don't have one of those four things, I don't have a story. Okay, this is the photographer I worked with, and that's little Lincoln. He learned to sign our names when we got there. It was such a great connection. Um, but this, okay, so now, I want, so you got your people, you got your character action setting theme. The theme can change as you go along with the reporting, but usually once I start writing, I want to be pretty solid on what it is. So reporting and interviewing. Have a pickup line. We talked about that a little bit. Why do you want to talk to them? Why should they talk to you? What do you need to know? After 30 years, I still go into every single interview with at least 30 questions. Um, I actually have a list, if you guys are interested, I can share with you a list of 30 questions I ask anybody. But I want to know, I usually don't use it, Right when I first sit down, I don't go like, okay, one, two, three, four. But I want to know at the end to go back and check and make sure I asked everything that I needed to. That gives me a lot of confidence. Um, broker your access. Explain to them what you need and why. Know what you're talking about. Be honest about your understanding. And here's something that I couldn't do when I was young that I kind of learned to do as I got older, is don't be afraid to be dumb. You know, I, I would go into these interviews pretending like I knew everything because I wanted them to think, I did my research, I got it, I totally understand gene therapy. I went into this one and said, I don't understand <laughs> at all. Can you help me understand? And people are so willing when you, act, when you admit you don't know that you need help understanding. And I'll say, I've got to explain this to sixth graders. You know, that's kind of the, the bar. Can a sixth grader understand what's going on? So break it down for me. And, and being dumb and being humble about that really, really helps. And it, it makes people want to help you. So that, that was kind of an, an older lady thing I had to figure out. Um, this is the section where we talked about what this was, the disease was. I read about it. I looked it up online, but Maggie really broke it down for me. In the hospital, Maggie and Anthony read everything they could find about the diagnosis. The broken gene's called MTM1, and it's carried on the X chromosome. Since girls have two X chromosomes, the good one generally overrides the bad. But boys only have one X chromosome. So if the gene's infective, defective, they inherit that disease. Only one in 50,000 boys in the world has this condition. Go along for the ride. Some of our young reporters don't want to get out of the office very much, and I, I don't understand that. They like to do you know, email questions or, or phone interviews. As much as possible, get out and do what you can in the field with the people. And it doesn't have to be anything even exciting. Go grocery shopping with them. Go walk the dog with them. Go sit on the bench while their kid's at Little League practice. Just be there in person and be where they are. Um, I really want to talk on their turf. So my very first question is, can I come over, you know? Um, sometimes we'll start on the porch, you know, or we'll sit outside, and then I want to get my foot in the door and come into the living room or the kitchen, and then eventually, like I said, I want to get into their bedroom. So I have this analogy of, like, you want to put your toe in the door, and then all of a sudden you're doing fan kicks through the bedroom, right? Um, and it's kind of amazing how many people actually let you in there. It, it really, it surprises me all the time. Um, Ask people for internal dialogue when you're reporting. Ask them not just what they were doing, what were they thinking, what were they feeling, what were they wondering about, what were they worrying about, what were they praying for. 
all those sort of quiet, introspective moments that you can get in somebody's head and heart enriches your story immensely. It gives you the authority and the voice to say not just what was happening or what these people were doing, but what was going on in their heads. And I think that that's a huge thing that elevates narrative over news stories. Share yourself a little bit. I, I, again, I didn't do this <laughs> very much as a young reporter. I was very worried about, it's not about me, right? I'm just the recorder of information here. But I found it helps a lot to just give a little bit about, I've got two kids, I've got an old dog, my husband's a drummer in a Grateful Dead band, boom. All of a sudden, I'm Lane, I'm a human being, I'm not a scary reporter. Oh, and that's another thing. I stopped saying I was a reporter <laughs> even before Trump made us the enemy of the people. I wouldn't say I was a reporter because people are scared of reporters. Reporters seem like they want to get something out of you or expose something about you. I just say I'm a writer. Writers aren't scary, you know? So even semantically introducing myself, I'm a writer for the Tampa Bay Times. Um, Oh, so, and, and share yourself a little bit along, along the way, you know, make connections. I think the, uh, the three easiest things to make connections with people are so that they feel like they get you a little bit. Talk about your kids, ask about their kids, dogs or pets, and cars. For some reason, I can't talk sports very well, I can't even pretend I can talk sports, but older men love talking about their first cars, and so that's often a, an opening conversation to just make some kind of connection. It has nothing to do with the story, right? You're just making a connection so that person feels like they know you and can trust you a little bit more. I did a story about um, <clears throat> a city manager in Florida who was uh, transitioning from a man to a woman. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And everybody in the town was up in uproar over it, and um, they ended up firing him over it before he even transitioned. And I was trying to get his wife to talk to me, and uh, she just didn't want to talk about it. She thwarted me for weeks and weeks and weeks. I sent letters, I, s I knocked on the door, I sent stories, everything I could think of. And one night, finally, I was talking to Steve, the city manager on the phone, and, I, and he said, what else do you need for this story? And I said, I really need your wife. I want the wife's perspective, right, on what's this like to watch your husband turn into a woman. And uh, he said, oh, she's sitting right here. And he answered the phone. <laughs> and it was like 11 o'clock at night. I like to do a lot of my interviews if I know people are night owls like me. People loosen up a lot when af late at night or after dinner. So it's like 11 o'clock. I'm in my pajamas. I think I'm drinking a glass of wine. And he hands the phone to the wife who I've been trying to get for weeks and weeks. And I was like, <gasps> and, and I, I tell the people right out, I can't. I can't imagine what you're going through. I just can't imagine what it would be like. You know, don't, don't try to pretend you do, even if you feel like you do. I can't imagine what it's like that you're going through. Help me understand. But I told her, you know, I remember the first time that my husband slept downstairs because we were having fights and he had moved into the downstairs room. And all of a sudden, that was what opened it up for her. And she started talking about he'd moved into the guest room, she'd moved all his stuff out of there, but he was still in the house. So we formed this really weird, like, wife connection, you know? And um, it really opened her up to be able to relate 
have someone not, not know what she was going through, but try to relate to that situation that she was in. So going along for the ride, too, I, I, I trained Maggie. <laughs> I kind of trained her to call me when something was going to happen um, and told her how important that was for me to be there to witness these scenes. This was the first time, oops. We live in Florida, right? So everybody's pretty close to the beach. This was the very first time they'd taken this kid to the beach. He was almost four years old and he'd never been to the beach. So she called me on a Sunday morning and said, we're going to the beach today to make portraits of Lincoln. And we got to go along. And I don't know if you guys work with videographers. I mean, in my career, I've gone from working with still photographers to videographers who document everything. And it really changes the way you report, right? So. I didn't, you know, he didn't want me interrupting. The, I didn't want to interview her while they were at the beach because he wanted to film this scene of the family going to the beach for the very first time. So we kind of, oh, my thing too. We kind of shut up and like let it happen the whole time. And then he came up with this brilliant idea that, that you guys, if you're working with photographers especially, what we did was we let it all unfold that day, didn't say a word, just be a fly on the wall. And the next day we went back and showed them the video and had them narrate what was going on. And we're able to stop frame by frame and say, what were you thinking here? What were you feeling here? What were you worrying about here? And it was wonderful, because we got all the insight we wanted, not in the moment, but the very next day. And um, I think that I'd never done a story like that before, you know, where we went back and let them sort of narrate what was happening. So this is, this is the part I wrote about them going to the beach. It took 10 minutes to stabilize him. Then his wheelchair got stuck in the sand. So Maggie carried him until she felt her feet sink into the surf. Anthony trailed behind, keeping the ventilator dry. You imagine carrying all these machines out to the beach just to get your kid to see the water? Do you want to feel it? Maggie asked, <clears throat> dangling Lincoln's limp feet above the shore. She dipped him until his toes traced ripples in the wet sand. There, that's salt water, she cried. I can't believe we're really doing this. The sun warmed Lincoln's face. The wind tousled his hair. Maggie pressed a shell into his hand. Mama, Lincoln signed, I love the sun. I love the water. I didn't know what he was signing, so we had to ask her that later as well. Okay, <clears throat> shut up and listen. That's my big reporting tip of the day. It's really hard for me to do. I am such a talkative person, and I want to interrupt you every five minutes and go, what's the follow-up question? What is, what's going on here? Shut up and listen and observe is, is a skill that I've had to train myself to do. Um, be attentive and interactive. One thing they don't teach you in journalism school is how to listen, how to be an active listener. Um, a lot of our, especially the young reporters, they go in with a bazillion questions, and they have their own agenda of what they want, and they forget to let the people sort of Drive the, call, drive the interview themselves. But even if you're on deadline, you know, you have time to let the people keep talking and come back. And I'll talk about taking notes in a minute for that. Don't judge. I think that's maybe the most important thing when you're doing these narratives. I write about all kinds of people who have been in prison, who have been somehow, you know, wronged somebody. Don't judge. Leave that at the door and let them just be a person that, uh, that you can not project anything onto, because you're trying to gather from them, not project onto them, right? Ask open-ended questions, aim for conversation, and then get intimate. Don't be afraid. I, I tell my journalism students, like, they're always like, oh, I don't want to ask somebody that question. I don't want to pry. I don't want to be that nosy. That's your job. 
right? And play it forward. What's the worst thing that can happen? The very worst thing that can happen if you ask somebody a hard question. What's the worst thing? They don't answer you, right? Or they call you a son of a bitch or something. They're not going to spit at you. They're not going to hit you. They're not going to arrest you. The worst thing that can happen is you get rejected, and that's okay. But you got to try. So don't be afraid. That's, that's my mantra for today. Seek emotion, regrets. Ask them to show you their scars. What are their dreams? Um, listen for dialogue, not quotes. News stories are like, blah, 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 quote, blah, 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 blah. I don't use a lot of quotes in my stories anymore unless they're really, really telling quotes, unless there's something that nobody else would say it like that. So instead of using, you know, 70% of your story as quotes, I have maybe less than 10% of my story as quotes. And I test each quote. Is that a quote somebody else would have said or could have said, or is that unique to this person? Pay attention to dialect, the way people talk, phrases that they say over and over. They had me um, profile a hockey coach once, okay? I, I told you I don't know anything about sports. I'm terrible at that. But this hockey coach hated the hockey writer from our player, had thrown a puck at his head during an interview. And they said, no, we need Lane. He's going to be nice to you, Lane. Um, I was like 30 years old, and I'm sitting in this little tiny hotel room with this mean old hockey coach, and he's drinking a vodka at like 8 o'clock in the morning. Every single question I asked him, he said, that's hockey. That's hockey. Yeah, well, that's hockey, you know, and I was getting so frustrated and mad, and then I started writing it down every time he said it, and it sort of became a refrain in my story, because that was this guy's look on the world, like, there was no introspection there at all, it was like, that's hockey, I've been doing this for 40 years, that's hockey, so that, instead of rejecting that and getting mad about it, I was like, I'm going to freaking embrace this guy and put that's hockey in my story about six times, because now you know who this guy is and where he's coming from. Um... Savor the silence. Again, shut up and listen, right? Let silences hang. It's hard to do because you want to keep digging until they respond, but people will fill in the silences for you in ways you never would have imagined if you can let them hang. Then all of a sudden, they become uncomfortable and they start telling you things you never would have even thought to ask. Um, let somebody bring a wingman. That's another thing I didn't ever used to want to do. Like, if, oh, can I bring my, my boyfriend, my mother, my roommate, whatever? No, I wanted you all to myself. But now I'm like, hell yeah, bring whoever you want. Because then you can get a dialogue and a conversation going. You can get that person going, that's not what really happened, or do you remember when that happened? And it actually augments the storytelling, I think. So let's, let somebody bring whoever they want, you know? Especially if you're going to their house and there's somebody else there, it is fine. You can have whoever else you want to in the room. You guys probably already know this, but just to uh, reinforce, ask about documents, ask about diaries, ask about journals, love letters. What are they watching on Netflix? What's in their iPod queue? And the other thing I started learning to ask is about bucket lists. What is your bucket list? What do you want to do before you die? And that really shows people um, what's most important to them, you know? And what, what are they... What are their goals for themselves in this world? So this is a part from the story that I found out when I asked Maggie and Anthony that. They started making a life list, the opposite of a bucket list. What they wanted to do after he got the shot, after he became normal, and they could do things with him that other people have always taken for granted that they could do with their kids. They wanted to take him camping to see fireflies. Anthony wanted his son to sit beside him on the sofa and play Super Mario Brothers. 
Maggie wanted to dance with her little boy at his bar mitzvah. I would never have learned those things if I hadn't asked about a bucket list. Okay, vacuum the scene. This is actually a phrase from um, Tom French. He came up with that notion. He can't be here with us, unfortunately, but I told him I was gonna steal his idea. All right, so vacuum the scene means what? Basically, suck in everything that's there. You don't know what you're gonna need, so I wanna have everything I can possibly have. When I'm trying to do the process of this, I, the, okay, if I got assigned a daily story and I wanted to turn it into a narrative, my process would be, I want an hour with you to sit down and interview, and then I want another hour or two to observe you. And that seems weird to people sometimes, but I just want to be on the fly, a fly on the wall and watch what's happening. So observe and interview, ideally at different times. You can't really interview somebody while they're doing something because it's going to interrupt what's happening. You need to be able to either do it beforehand or afterward to go back and ask about it. Get the five W's, obviously, who, what, why, when, where. But the, the why of the why, I think, is the most uh, interesting thing. So keep pushing. Keep pushing for specific details. You guys know, get the name of the dog, but also get the brand of the cigarettes. Get the brand of the beer. Somebody who's going to drink a Bud Light is different from somebody who wants, you know, a Porter Stout microbrew. And the more specific the details you have, the more easy it is to transport your readers into that world. And you never know what you're going to get. If someone, you know, people say something really generic, keep asking at least three follow-ups to every question. I was doing a story, one of my very first narrative stories they sent me out on was, um, the, we had this, the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes, which somebody will just show up at your house with a million dollar check, like all the, all the magazine subscribers, they, uh, they, they enter the sweepstakes and then once a year they t go to someone's house in a big truck and bring them a big check for a million dollars. And so they sent me along for the ride where they were going to give out a million dollars. And we went to this lady's house and she comes to the door in her bathrobe oh my God, I won a million dollars, you know. So I asked her, I said, well, what were you doing when they knocked on your door? And she said, I was eating breakfast. Okay, Mrs. DeGregory was eating breakfast when she won a million dollars. That's awesome. What were you eating for breakfast? Cereal. Okay, a little bit better. She's eating cereal. She's not a fancy person. She's like the rest of us eating cereal. What kind of cereal were you eating? Do you know what she was eating? Lucky Charms. <laughs> Seriously, you can't make that stuff up, right? She's eating Lucky Charms when she won a million dollars. I mean, come on. It would have been great if she was eating Golden Grams, but Lucky freaking Charms. So I always remember that as like, like keep asking and asking and honing in until you get that brand because you don't know how. Cheerios wouldn't have been as exciting, right? But Lucky Charms, that made the whole story, you know? So yeah, keep asking. Um, Note, note things in the room, like vacuuming the scene is like sucking in everything in the room around you. So in a news story, you're never going to write like, what do the lights look like? What does the carpet look like? What kind of chairs are there? Are there tablecloths on the tables? All those details might play into your story down the road. They might not, but if you have them, at least they're there if you need them, right? What's the weather like? And, and that's something too, even if you're recreating a scene, you can spend five minutes and find out how big the moon was. Was it a crescent moon or a whole moon? What was the wind like? What was the temperature outside? You can recreate that if you need it, but if you're in the moment, write down those things because it is nice to have whether it was a stormy night or a starry night in your story. Note things like clutter, uh, things, pictures on the walls, trophies people might have, all these telling details that, that you can bring back and shape your person. 
I, I did a story one time about a, um, a boy cheerleader who'd been kicked off the team because he was drinking vodka at practice, allegedly. And his mother was certain he hadn't. And I went to their house and asked if, I asked, can I take a tour of your house? You know, that's often my first question. Will you take me on a tour? And then I can see things that they might not have ever wanted to show me. She had a framed tiara at the top of the stairs in this huge glass case from when she was Little Miss Brandon. And she was a beauty queen. And here she is like 45 years old and she still has her framed tiara as the centerpiece in this house. And all of a sudden I understood a lot about this mother. Um, so those details, you know, they're, they're, um, they're very telling sometimes. Uh, five senses. We talked about this a little bit yesterday, but I write down on the top of my notepad, who, uh, see something, smell something, taste something, feel something. You, you hear and see, but taste and feel is really, really important and transportive details. There was a moment with uh, Lincoln where they were trying to teach him how to swallow because if he got this um, gene therapy, he'd all of a sudden be able to get his tracheotomy out and they were hoping he'd be able to talk and eat. So they went through this whole litany of little lollipops and for the first time he tasted something. And I asked them if I could taste the same thing he was tasting so that I could describe it. This whole little like bouquet of lollipops he went through. Um, write down body language. I didn't ever used to pay attention to that. Are people crossing their arms? Are they crossing their legs? Are they tilting their head? Uh, do they lean in? Do they hug? You know, things like that that, are, that you might not think to write down because it's not, they're not saying anything or it's not information, but body language is really great. And write down the questions they won't answer. When do they avert their eyes? When do they pause and you know it's uncomfortable and they don't want to answer a question? That's kind of weird, right? Write down the things they don't answer, but that's also really telling, I think. Um, and it helps in your story if you, you know, they didn't want to talk about blah, 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 or they wouldn't answer the question about blah, blah, blah. Um, makeup, jewelry, nail polish, all those things that tell about who a person is, <clears throat> those little small details. Um, this, this was one of my favorite details I got from their story. Um, and it was just kind of from looking, in their looking around their living room and then asking. Anthony buried his cello in the corner behind the medical stroller. Maggie framed her ballet shoes. Above a window, they hung a wooden plaque. Hope is the ability to hear the music of the future. Faith is the courage to dance to it today. Isn't that beautiful? That was like their mantra they hung in their living room kind of trying to hold on to everything. Okay, taking notes. This is not a copyrighted procedure. <laughs> it's not for everybody, but it's something that I came up with because I think it's even taking notes for narrative is different than taking notes for news stories, right? So I use the big giant notepads, big legal pads, because I'm not just writing down what people are saying or what I'm seeing. I want to be able to have room for me to, to write my own observations and thoughts. You know, how often does that happen to you guys? Like you're out in the field and you're thinking of something, or this is making you feel a certain way, and then you get back to write and you've forgotten it, or it, it totally is lost upon you. So while, while I'm taking notes, and I'm only writing down great quotes, I used to write down everything everybody said, and that's impossible, right? And when you're doing that, you're also not ingesting it and reflecting on it. So I listen for the really great quotes, and I put them in big quote marks so I know to go back for it, and like, that's a quote I want to use. 
but the observations and thoughts along the way I put in parentheses, and I find that really, really helpful. At the top of the page, I write the five senses to make sure I remind myself to do that. I date and put the time signature at the corner of every time I flip the page, I update the time. I started doing that when I was covering jury selection for a murder trial, and it felt like I'd been there for four hours, and it was just 40 minutes. <laughs> so I, I wanted to know, like, how long have I really been here for this, you know? Um, and then this is, this is the part that really helps me the most, to learn to shut up. Because <laughs> if, if I'm asking you a question and you tell me you have a dog, right away I'm going to want to go, what's his name? What breed is he? How old is he? Does he like to play fetch? Did you adopt him or did you buy him? Or All these follow-up questions in my head, and I'm going to stop you in your interview, and that sucks, because then you break the flow. So when I'm taking notes, I use the left-hand side margin to go back with an arrow and mark where I want to come back and ask those follow-up questions. That lets me have the confidence that I'm not going to forget to do that, and it doesn't interrupt the person. It lets them continue to tell their narrative. So always put the follow-up questions in the corner. The why of the why, you know, that's, that's also part of your observations and thoughts, but why is this happening? What's the next thing that's going to happen? The bottom left corner, I put contact information so I can find it real easily. Let me get your email. Let me get your Twitter. Let me get your cell phone. Who else can I talk to? That's the other thing. You know, at each one of those pages, I want to know who else should I be talking to or going to. And at the bottom, I put specific details like how bright are the lights? What color is the carpet? You know, um, and numbers. I'm really, really bad with numbers, um, and I know I'm going to need them. So instead of burying them in my notes, I put them down on the bottom margin there so I can find them real easily when I'm writing my story. Does that make sense? It, it doesn't work for everybody, but it really helps me. Um, a lot of the reporters I work with like to record everything, and that's great, but you can't put your own thoughts and observations, and you can't mark your follow-up questions on an audio. So this is, this is the part that I kept, that I was able to do because I kept writing down follow-up questions. They had taken um, Lincoln to the hospital, and Everybody thought he was going to die. The doctors told them he was going to die. And Maggie said, oh, I went crazy in the waiting room. And she keeps on telling me this story. And I'm like, OK, what does that mean, go crazy in the waiting room? I could have written she went crazy in the waiting room, but I wanted to know what that looked like. So I kept asking. She said, well, I was throwing and kicking things. Well, what were you throwing and kicking? And I was shouting. Well, what were you shouting, right? So this is, this is the section from that. In the hospital waiting room, she kicked chairs and flipped tables, shouting over and over, begging her son, you're not allowed to die. Hold on. Fight. You can't leave. You're about to be cured. I double-checked with her husband about what she had said. That was such a strong moment in the story that I was not there for. Um, but at being able to ask those follow-up questions and get that internal dialogue of what she was yelling at her poor little guy. Okay, if you have a question for Lane or would like to suggest a podcast topic, please email it to writelane at tampabay.com. That's W-R-I-T-E-L-A-N-E at tampabay.com. And join us next week on Wednesday morning for the next podcast. This podcast was produced by Monica Herndon. Music was composed and performed by Dan DeGregory. Thanks for listening. Hi. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.